It's Tuesday, July 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. What does it take to keep a movie studio open during the pandemic? A lot of work and a lot of coronavirus tests. Pinewood Atlanta Studios will be spending $1.5 million on tests each month once it starts operating at full capacity. They are also using an app to track workers' symptoms between tests and a badge system that doesn't let you open any doors on the lot unless you have a negative test. Sarah Krauss, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, we all know that those with underlying health conditions are more at risk of getting worse symptoms from COVID-19, but those with diabetes are dying more often. A new government study shows that nearly 40% of people who have died of COVID-19 had diabetes. Robin Respo, reporter at Reuters, joins us for why coronavirus is killing diabetes patients at alarming rates. Finally, after six months of the pandemic and less than 100 days to go before the election, many are asking why Trump hasn't tried harder to solve the coronavirus crisis. No issue has impacted his re-election prospects as the pandemic has, and allies and opponents alike don't feel like he has done enough in his response. Dave Clark, White House editor at The Washington Post, joins us for how Trump is trying to refocus on coronavirus. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. When you get to the lot, you have to show that all clear to a security sort of checkpoint where you're issued a different color wristband every day to make sure that everyone who is there is safe to be there. There's compliance monitors that keep an eye out to make sure everyone has those correct wristbands and your worker badge will not work to open any doors unless you have a clear COVID test. Joining us now is Sarah Krause, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. As film and TV sets are slowly starting to reopen, Pinewood Atlanta Studios is one of the biggest places. I mean, they've done a bunch of huge movies like Avengers Endgame. And right now, obviously, as we're starting to open things back up, one of their biggest jobs is keeping coronavirus off the set there and off the lot. There's several hundred people who are working and they're starting to undergo tests weekly, sometimes more every other day or twice a week, something like that. It's just big undertaking that costs a lot of money. Sarah, tell us how Pinewood Atlanta Studios is handling coronavirus. So there's a number of measures that they have in place of which testing is one part. But essentially, before you can come onto the set or onto the lot, which is this 700-acre facility, you have to be cleared of COVID. So days before reporting to work, you come in to an offsite location nearby that you get swabbed by a nurse. They process it when you have a negative result an app that you will have downloaded by that point sort of clears you. You answer symptom checks before you report to the lot. When you get to the lot, you have to show that all clear to a security sort of checkpoint where you're issued a different color wristband every day to make sure that everyone who is there is safe to be there. There's compliance monitors that keep an eye out to make sure everyone has those correct wristbands and your worker badge will not work to open any doors unless you have a clear COVID test and have passed the symptom checks and have gone through all the requisite security protocols in order to be there. Tell me a little bit more about the testing because a lot of people talk about testing and how it either does figure into the workplace or it doesn't. It can be very expensive. The regimen of testing that they're doing there at Pinewood Atlanta Studios could cost more than $1.5 million. A month. That's right. So I spoke with Pinewood Atlanta Studios 
chief executive who sort of steeped himself in research on testing and viral transmission and air quality when all of this really kicked off and became apparent in mid-March that it was going to be a problem. And his main goal is, you know, what can we do to make sure that if filming starts, it's uninterrupted. You know, how can we bring everyone back safely and avoid any disruptions? And so, yes, the testing regime that they've settled on for now and knowing it's sort of a work in progress that may change over time, it will cost more than a million and a half a month. Some people are tested multiple times a week. Some people are tested just once a week. And how frequently you get tested is dictated by the type of job you have. So if you're someone who is in close contact with many different types of other people on set, you are going to be tested more frequently than someone who maybe operates a piece of machinery well away from others. So it's very sort of role specific to determine the frequency of tests. And to ensure that there is that quick turnaround time that you talked about, they tried to pick a testing partner that itself works with a network of laboratories. So you're not reliant on one lab that may have a bottleneck in terms of too many tests to process at once or a supply chain problem. They're trying to work with multiple labs and even in some cases overnight samples to labs that can handle that capacity. So speed is sort of of the utmost import here just to make sure that you have actionable information that you can then isolate if someone's sick or clear them and have them get to work. Mr. Patterson, who you spoke to, also thinks that the testing will require for, uh, you know, a state's film production tax credits, which is kind of an interesting thing, uh, sign of the times, I guess. You're going to have to start rolling this into, hey, are we going to come and work in your state? Well, you're going to give us tax credits for testing. As companies that embrace testing go all in and really try to make it part of their ongoing protocols for the indefinite future, they're trying to say, you know, like, who's going to pay for this? Do we have the budget to pay for it? Does it come out of our profits? Is there a way to take advantage of economic development incentives that exist? So how do we make this more affordable and palatable if this is something that we are going to need to be able to continue shooting? In the movie industry, the other thing that they benefit from is there was a lot of cash thrown into streaming services and new content delivery. So there's investor cash that is available to make sure that there is new content to stream through all these pipes that we have now coming into our living room. And so timing is of the essence in terms of cranking out new content as well and having that cash to help pay for some of the testing is useful in this case as well. You did make mention of a few other companies that are getting their testing underway and antibody tests as well. You mentioned SpaceX, grocery store chain uh, Kroger, Microsoft. They're all looking for different ways at handling the testing process. We even saw Google announce that they're letting workers stay home until summer 2021. So there's just other ways to kind of get around all of that. But, but there's so much that's going on with uh, uh, so many difficulties in, in reopening these companies. There's companies that have said, can people continue to do their jobs productively or remotely? Or, you know, if we're going to bring them back, what role, if any, should testing play? How would we pay for that? What would it look like? Another company in my story wanted a consistent testing protocol for all of their workers around the world. So they, again, created their own system for how frequently someone should be tested. That's based in part on the nature of their role, if they're traveling in states where infections are not under control. So companies are creating each of them their own formula for what works or what they hope will work to bring people back in the safest way possible. Um, But essentially every executive that I talked to for this story said it's an iterative process. We're figuring it out. We're trying to make workers not feel like guinea pigs, but also like have some security that when they come to work, we know we're not perpetuating an outbreak or we're jumping on sickness very quickly to be able to isolate an infected person. Sarah Kraus, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
reducing the cost of insulin, out-of-pocket cost of insulin for individuals with living with diabetes is an example of how in the midst of COVID, there's been greater understanding about the importance of diabetes. Joining us now is Robin Respo, reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Since the coronavirus pandemic began, we had always heard that people with underlying health conditions were at a greater risk for getting more severe symptoms from this. Diabetes has seemed to be one of those things that figures high among death rates when it comes to people getting COVID-19. Robin, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning about coronavirus and diabetes. So we looked at a number of studies from China, Europe, and the U.S. since the COVID-19 virus emerged earlier this year. And we found that diabetes, and specifically type 2 diabetes, if it's differentiated in the study, has continually emerged and I would say increasingly emerging in the studies as common among patients who either die from COVID-19 or have a very severe outcome like a hospitalization or an ICU admission. So what is it about diabetes in particular that seems to be a problem when people have COVID-19? I know it targets a lot of the same organs. So that was one question that we asked every researcher who was looking at this, and it's still really unclear. It seems as though the virus does target a lot of the organs, such as the heart and the lungs, that diabetes also targets. So the tissues in those organs may already be weakened. The virus does also seem to increase blood sugars, which a lot of infections do. But any time that a person with diabetes has increased blood sugars, it is harder to recover from illness or infection, and it can lead to other problems. But that said, it's still unclear. It's still unclear. It needs to be studied. And so doctors are kind of worried about this because a lot of people that might have diabetes are either canceling appointments to their doctor because of shutdowns, because of just worries about going to the doctor. So they're concerned that they could see a surge of new cases or a surge of people going to the hospital needing more treatment because of this. And also a surge of potential complications from diabetes. Diabetes is a disease that is so important to manage and regularly manage with keeping blood sugars at okay levels and checking for infections that could lead to amputations or things like that. So what we heard is that it's really, really important for patients and for caregivers to continue to offer patients appointments and be available to help manage diabetes, even as regular office visits may be harder to get or some clinics may be shut down. And we're seeing a lot of this data come out of from the diabetes belt. I actually never knew that there was something classified like that, but apparently it's a lot of southern states that have really high uh, diabetes rate. We polled every state in the country to ask if they were tracking morbidities like diabetes in their cases and their hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. And most states either didn't respond or are not tracking. But among the few that did respond, we found that there were a number in this so-called diabetes belt, which is predominantly in the American Southeast, that had high cases of COVID-19 deaths among patients with diabetes 
And these are states where diabetes does have a higher rate of incidence. So in some states, it's up around 13%, whereas in other states, it might be something like 7% of the population has diabetes. Nationally, it's more like 10%. So to have something like 40% of your COVID patients who die having diabetes, that's significantly more than the population, even in the diabetes belt. Obviously, people need to work, but for people with diabetes, there's a huge cost if you need insulin and you just can't stay home or just take the time off. For a lot of these people that need that medication, you know, they're still putting themselves at risk by continuing to go to work because they need to pay for their medicine. It's, it's very expensive. Insulin can be very expensive if it's not covered fully by your insurance. Insulin costs a lot of money, and we've heard a lot about that over the last year or so. None of us want to ever lose health insurance, but if you are a person with diabetes, you really don't want to lose health insurance and lose access to insulin or other medications that are managing the disease or just the access to caregivers and providers who can help manage the disease. So people who are facing job loss or job insecurity with diabetes are in an extra stressful place because of these complications. Robin Respo, reporter at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I do actually do it when I need. I mean, I carry the mask when I have to go. I went into Walter Reed Hospital the other day. I have the mask right here. And I carry it and I will use it gladly. Joining us now is Dave Clark, White House editor at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thanks for having me. We just hit the 100 day till the election mark, which means that a lot of things are going to start accelerating. Everything's going to start coming a lot faster. And I wanted to talk about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting the race, is affecting President Trump and what's going on through all of this. There's a big question that is floating around. Why hasn't President Trump tried harder to solve the coronavirus crisis? This is a huge thing that really is going to affect his chances at re-election. And there's been a lot of polls showing bad marks on this, people not really happy with the way he's responded to this. My thought bubble on this is that at first, maybe the president thought that the coronavirus would never be that bad in the United States. He wanted to focus on his biggest strength, the economy. So reopening quickly, getting back to business, things like that. But the pandemic has shown staying power. We don't have it under control. And the White House, I know, is going to this reshifting and focusing back on it. But who knows right. how it's going to play out in these last 100 days before the election. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about what's going on. You know, what you said is it's just undeniably true, which is that the uh, coronavirus, the pandemic, has really just been devastating for the president politically. Almost every poll that comes out shows the situation getting worse for him. And, you know, the president says he doesn't believe in these polls, but, I mean, they're by a variety of different news organizations and groups, and they're all going the wrong direction for him. And, uh, you know, it really seems like from the start, he just didn't take the pandemic particularly seriously, right? I mean, he talk about how it was going to go away and, you know, this is just media hype. And um, a lot of the uh, public health officials feel that, you know, we really missed an important window like some other countries were able to take advantage of to sort of bend the curve or really try to get this under control. And it's certainly not under control now. And that's not just hurting him politically. That's hurting uh, the Republican Party overall, the Senate and the House. 
those candidates are very much in trouble now. Trump's kind of dragging them down. So that's kind of been one of the big questions is why he didn't just take this very seriously from the beginning and just try to do the best he could to contain it or mitigate it as best as possible. But he hasn't done that. And our two reporters, Phil Rucker and Ashley Parker, did a story. And people who know Trump just said, you know, he never really believed it. He kind of lives in his own media ecosystem where he only hears positive things, that aides only really like to tell him positive things, and that he kind of has a history of just thinking he can wish things away. But obviously none of that's worked. And according to that reporting, they were saying that some aides and outside advisors had been trying to get President Trump on track with this. He needed to grapple with the reality of the virus. And what changed? How did the president come around? It seemed that advisors began presenting the president with maps, data, showing that there was spikes in places that were Republican strongholds and in states that where his supporters were. And if they were being decimated by the coronavirus, this is going to be a problem for them. I think that's what helped uh, it sink in for him was they're showing him Florida, Texas, Arizona, other key states that he considers strongholds of his supporters and that he needs to win in order to be reelected. They're showing, you know, it's the caseloads are spiking here and, you know, your poll numbers consequently are going down. I mean, he's, he's down on the polls. There's just too much evidence for the White House to pretend otherwise. I mean, even President Trump at his first new round of briefings admitted, you know, it might get worse before it gets better. But, you know, I think the key question is going to be, you know, you can treat it as a PR problem, but obviously maybe that'll help him a little bit politically. But ultimately, the problem is that there's a pandemic raging in the country. And until that's under control, his political fortunes are really in peril. I mean, you can't really do a PR campaign to get rid of a virus. So now the response to all of that, we've seen the return of the coronavirus briefings, although it's just been the president by himself. You know, we'll have to see how those evolve Mm -hmm. again and if more experts are back like Dr. Deborah Burks or Dr. Anthony Fauci. But they've also set up a smaller coronavirus working group, which is led by Dr. Deborah Burks and Jared Kushner. And they have kind of this daily meeting to focus on uh, numbers and things like that, but also the messaging for the president. Burks is really, she's came in, she's an outsider, she's a longtime public health official, but she's really become part of the uh, the White House inner circle. And Jared Kushner, who's obviously the president's son-in-law and a trusted aide, you know, he's pretty much involved with everything. Uh, he has a lot, of, a lot of critics, too, but he's very popular with the president and uh, the White House. And uh, they are trying to come up with, you know, ways of obviously to make this better. But, you know, the message is in some ways it's not just PR. I mean, in a pandemic, one of the most powerful tools you have is a message, you know, and a good example as the mask, right? For so long, the president sort of, you know, he wouldn't say don't wear a mask, but he made it clear he wasn't going to, and he didn't think it was a big deal. And, you know, a lot of public health experts said one of the things that could help the most and continue to help the most is if people wear masks. So now, you know, recently President Trump has said, you should wear a mask. It's patriotic to wear a mask. And they kind of had a photo up for him up at Walter Reed where he was seen wearing the mask. But, you know, we'll see how far that goes, because, you know, there are other events in the president. You know, they don't wear masks. I mean, the people are tested before meeting with the president, according to the White House. So practically, they might not need to wear one. But it's about the messaging. You know, people who are skeptical of the mask, of wearing a mask, you know, might feel differently if the president was out there really hammering home to wear one. Dave Clark, White House editor of The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, great to be with you guys. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.